Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. Hello, UX Cake listeners, and welcome to episode 40. So ever since I started asking users questions as part of my design practice over 20 years ago, I've often asked myself, how could I ask better questions? Am I asking the right questions? What bias am I bringing into the interaction? And I'm talking beyond Research 101 lessons like avoiding leading questions and Asking questions that are open-ended, those are important, and that's where we start, but how can we go beyond that? At some point, we might begin to look inward as researchers and at the part that we as individuals are playing in the outcome, our own biases and assumptions and our own values and life experiences that sort of come with a package of being human. So who better to have this conversation with, I asked myself, than Steve Portugal. Steve is an author and an expert on the subject of asking questions. Steve wrote the book, Interviewing Users, which I always recommend as a great place to start for those who are newer to asking users questions. He also wrote Doorbells, Danger, and Dead Batteries with stories from practiced user researchers that deal with some of the more advanced issues of research. We had a great conversation, and Steve had lots of great advice for researchers who are at any level of their practice. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for joining me on UX Cake today. I'm really happy to be talking with you. I'm really excited to talk with you. I mean, I've had lots of really wonderful guests, and I always feel very honored with every guest. But you in particular have a book that I have been recommending to teams and classes that I teach since it came out called Interviewing Users. And it became a classic almost as as soon as it came out. I was actually, I looked at when it was published in 2013 and I thought, well, it had to have been before that because it just seems like such a classic now. I'm excited to talk to you about the next level of asking questions kind of beyond that interviewing 101 beyond the basics, because even after over 20 years of asking questions, I feel there's always more to learn. I think that's one of the essential truths about something like interviewing or asking questions is that it's, you know, lifelong learning maybe is a cliche, but I mean, I identify with what you're saying. I never stop learning, uh, identifying my own mistakes, seeing other best practices or other people's mistakes as as sort of inputs to my own learning. I like that. I mean, yeah, I wrote a book about this topic, which gives me some perceived role as an expert, but that doesn't mean that I know everything or that knowing everything is possible or desirable. I mean, in some ways, if you set out to teach something, it actually puts you in a good state to look at your own practice because you've identified you know, things that you're telling other people to get better at or focus on. It it actually helps me see when I am doing those things or not doing those things. So I like getting better at it. I mean, hopefully I continue to get better at it and I haven't, 
you know, long since peaked. But I like that it is a fundamental kind of activity, a person-to-person activity. But uh, for those of us that make it part of our profession, it it's really worth sort of self-examination and reflection with the goal of of making some improvement in the specific things that we do. I don't know. Have we just scratched the surface of it? I don't know if just asking questions and listening was a discipline. Where are we at in its evolution? I think pretty early. That's a really interesting observation there because ever since I've been asking questions 20 plus years, I'm always asking myself, is there a better question? Are these the right questions? You know, and always assuming that if I was going to do this in a year, it would probably be different. And so like this idea that as a practice, it's evolving. I really like that idea. In your most recent book, Doorbells, Danger, and Dead Batteries, in the last chapter, which, by the way, is available online to read, I want to just add that for listeners, but the last chapter is called The Myth of Objectivity. And I think that might be a really good place to start our conversation because we talked a little bit about talking about assumptions and biases and this idea that we as researchers can even be objective is a myth. So let's start there with what is the myth of objectivity? You know, we talk a lot about bias in user research. It's a question I often get asked, and it's often a question that comes from maybe someone that's new to research or sort of learning about it. And they have this idea that bias is bad and that they should stop it. And it's sort of a simplistic view, good hearted, but I think overly simplistic. And I think about that, I don't know if you've seen this graphic that shows up in presentations that was showed up on the internet a few years ago. It's a wheel of cognitive biases. It's a really amazing visualization. Something like 152 different biases that have been named. (laughs) There's probably more than that. Yes. And I think that's like, that's a wake up call to someone that thinks that bias is sort of a monolith that they should therefore avoid. You know, cognitive biases are not failures. They're just part of the, of human nature. They're ways that, I mean, I don't know, there's probably some evolutionary explanation for some of them. And that's why our brains work this way. And now we don't live in the jungle. And so, you know, we recognize negative signals more than positive signals, for example, because that's fight or flight kind of built that in. It's just to say that bias is not sort of a moral failure or kind of a personality failure. It's it's evolutionary. It's cultural. And I also don't mean to say, well, just accept bias. If I say the word bias and you come up with sort of the ugliest versions of that, of what that word could mean, you might misinterpret me as saying that like, oh, bias is fine. And it's just, you know, I mean, when I talk about cognitive bias specifically, it's how our brains work. And, um, you know, each one of those 152 or whatever, you know, there's things written about them and there's acknowledging how they work and trying to create techniques or interactions in research or in the rest of your life to get around them. It's not that they're insurmountable, but it is the river we're swimming in as sort of humans, you know, in a world of humans. That I think is just the context for us being alive and being with people. So we tend to hold up objectivity as this perfect goal. And that maybe by saying that we think it's attainable, you know, like enlightenment or something, we're going to kind of trend towards that. I think acknowledging that that bias is part of being human and that we doesn't mean, you know, we'll give it up. 
and forget about it, but just, it's not a failure. It's not a personal failure. It's not a moral failure. It's not a cognitive failure. It's the context that we're in. You know, then I think it invites us to say, what do we want to do about it? I don't know. Can I throw it back at you? So <laughs> you cited that part of the book. There's a lot in that chapter, none of which could I recite uh, from memory while we're sitting here. But I'm wondering if we want to drill down into what you were picking up on. Well, you know, there's something particular that you said, because, you know, certainly it's fine to say, yes, well, we can't avoid, you know, our biases. But there's something that you said that I thought was really important, uh, a really nice takeaway, which is understanding that, you know, we're coming into it with a certain set of values and judgment. And what you said was a great researcher doesn't let that bounce off. They process them. And if they're very lucky and very good, they can also put that back into the work itself. It's kind of a two-edged sword, I think. Part of the value of doing primary research is that we are using our personal experiences to make interpretations. I mean, it also introduces unseen biases, but this point that we can let maybe even in the moment understand when we are bringing maybe a value judgment or a bias or an assumption, when we understand that that's happening in the moment, this idea that you don't just like ignore it, but you process it and put that back into the work itself, either in the moment or perhaps even after the moment. But I'd love it if you could expand on, on your thoughts on that specifically. You know, I think it's sort of how do we prepare ourselves? How do we create the conditions for ourselves? And maybe that's a thing that, that I'm talking about, especially in, in Doorbell's Danger and Dead Batteries, maybe a little more than interviewing users. That second book is a lot of things, but in some ways it's sort of an evolution of the thinking about research. It's about us, right? It's about creating the conditions for us to be successful. And I think the way maybe research is practiced or taught, it's incumbent on you to execute perfectly and focus everything outwards. We're thinking about our users, our customers, our data, our stakeholders. But this kind of examination of bias is about us, right? You know, examining ourselves, evaluating ourselves, giving ourselves the opportunity to improve. That's maybe seen as a little indulgent. Why are you spending time or energy on this? Get on to the next thing and just go do a good job. And this isn't really about, you know, training or reading a book or attending a webinar. I mean, or listening to a podcast, even though we're using this format to kind of advance these ideas, it's sort of incumbent on, you know, a researcher who wants to improve to create the conditions for themselves or others where they can notice, take it in, reflect, process. Uh, those kinds of things. This came up in another interview recently, this idea that reflection, we often are are so focused on gathering the inputs and maybe reflecting on the inputs, but not necessarily reflecting on our part that we played in that. Right. So first of all, is there time for me to do research? Second of all, is there time for me to do any kind of analysis on what I learned in the research. Third, is there any time for me to reflect on the processes and tools that we used? And maybe fourth is, you know, can I reflect on myself in these somewhat obscure or arcane ways that I am participating in very ordinary activities of talking and listening and asking questions? Like it's, 
it, it's a it's a kind of a lift to to get there for that. But if we want to get better at dealing with bias, we have to create the conditions. So that I feel like you asked me how, and then I just went really meta on on it being important. <laughs> well, there's meta, and then there's also because it is something that is often a afterthought. I'm wondering if there are any methods that you or teams that you've worked with have used to actually uncover these sorts of things before or even after we're conducting research. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what makes something a method, but you know, keep calling it kind of creating the conditions for. It's great to do research with somebody else, like with another person who's a researcher or in a researcher role. I don't care what their title is. You know, having somebody else with you when you're doing whatever method that you're doing for your data collection means that you can talk to somebody else about a common experience. You can observe them having the common experience with you. They can observe you. So participant says something and whatever the thing that they say, either of you might have a reaction. They might laugh, might have a certain kind of follow-up question, might change their body language. You're just, you're sharing that experience with somebody else so that afterwards you can have a conversation with them. Not even necessarily probing what happened when to you when X happened, but just coming out and, of that experience and saying, I felt this, I thought this, or here's my observation or comment about our participant. It doesn't always have to be inward, but just having a person that was there with you to say, I thought this participant or this person or, you know, Mary that we met was blank or did blank or had this or I was surprised about whatever sort of feelings or reactions, because that's what happens, right? You just start processing and sorting out and telling stories. But there is a bias in what struck you as interesting or funny or confusing or exciting for the project or personally inspiring for you, whatever that that is, to have someone else who can say, oh, I heard something different, or oh, I thought something different, or yes, and this was important to me, whatever that that back and forth is, you know, that dynamic between you and your colleague or your collaborator, I'm talking about being very opportunistic as opposed to saying, you know, trying to go through the entire interview and sort of test for bias and test for interpretation. But if you're doing research, you're paying attention, you're excited, you're thinking about what this means, you're pulling things away, uh, pulling things in to take away from the interview while you're doing the interview, the conversation that you have is going to cover lots of stuff like, what does this mean for our hypothesis? Or what should we do differently in the next session? But also, oh, here's how you saw that. Here's how I saw that. Those kinds of conversations, which are so crucial, really happen best when you can have them together and not just like notes in a doc. And yeah, I just yeah, want to yeah. point that out because I talked to a team recently who was doing research and they'd have various people on their team observing silently. And I asked, so are you as a team then after each session coming together and discussing your observations? And, you know, they looked at me very blankly, like, no, uh, maybe people will add their notes. And I thought, just like you said, it's very opportunistic. That's a huge opportunity that's missed. Yeah. 
And I wonder, I don't know the people that you're speaking to or where that conversation went, but, you know, people think about research as maybe a convergent activity. There is a school of thought or school of practice that's kind of ask the questions, get the answers, tabulate the answers, improve the design, right? And then there's the, we don't know what we don't know conversation that exposes a lot of topics that we then have to examine and then converge back to our conclusions. So if your approach to research for the problems you're trying to solve with the research is not the second one, then why would it even occur to you to talk about different things that you heard since you're really just kind of tabulating or or ticking boxes? Yeah, what do we think the whole purpose of this enterprise is in doing research is going to change how we think about how we address how we uncover biases and questions and sort of ambiguous aspects of of making sense of of people. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think there are many levels of people who are asking questions and some of it that's happening is still very basic, kind of really is your research 101 type question or approach to doing research of teams who maybe don't have a researcher on the team and they're just learning how to do it. So I think what we're talking about here definitely is that next level of people who understand the basics and are still wondering how they can improve. And it doesn't necessarily take another expert researcher. Like you said, it's whoever is involved in asking the questions and and trying to understand what's happening or more about the users or more about the problem. And I think it's important to realize that that doesn't have to be like a research partner or a design partner. I've had really successful collaborations with PMs or developers, you know, and some people ask, well, how can I get my team to even, you know, watch and asking them to do a job like taking notes or something like that can be really helpful. But I wonder if even setting it up beforehand, like, you know, we're going to talk about this afterwards. All right, <laughs> you know, I want to get your thoughts on the whole thing afterwards. So let's do a little review after the session might be helpful. Yeah, agreed. And I think you're speaking a bit about another aspect to make this successful, which is diversity, right? If you want to uncover biases by having a conversation about what you each heard and saw and how that might be different. Well, in your example, bringing in someone who thinks about the problem space differently because their job is different, well, that's a diverse approach, or they have a different perspective than you do. So that's an aspect of diversity. All the sort of cultural, demographic you know, aspects of diversity where you have a different experience. You are bringing something into the interview, and the person you're with is bringing something different into the interview. So the more of that you have, the more chances you have to yeah check yourself and have somebody see something different. This isn't really about who's right or who's wrong. It's more about highlighting elements that you can then examine and consider. Uh, obviously, the greater the breadth and the people that you and your colleagues are interviewing, then you know that's sort of about what kind of sample do we create. Now, there's practical things here, right? You have to pick some things. You have to pick some things to focus on for who you are talking to and you you know you're limited by who you can bring with you i think the greater the breadth of who we are working with and who we have access to to do this 
the more uh, whatever our personal backgrounds and experiences in our own lives are, the more we can have that challenged. And I don't when I say challenge, I don't mean someone saying you're wrong. I just mean someone saying, oh, I, I saw this. I heard this. Someone who's new to this work or new to the project that you're working on is going to see things. Someone who's an old hand at it is going to see other things. As much as you can get all that, it makes your own. This is about the analysis of the work as well as there. Are, it's it's kind of all related. It's sort of hard to separate, you know, uh, improving our our access to our own biases with making sense of what we're hearing. If you want to make sense of what you're hearing, you have to understand what you're not hearing or how you are overlaying your own pre-existing templates on top of what you're getting back. You know, really leaning on your collaborators to help you do that. And I don't mean do the heavy lifting for you, but to be there and share reflections is going to give you so much more access to that. Something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, I wanted to dig into that a little more as well, which is this idea that we're learning from mistakes, which means mistakes are made. (laughs) I I mean, I have to say that as a, you know, as a researcher, the worst feeling in the world is watching or listening to a recorded session and realizing, why didn't I ask that obvious follow-up question? Hopefully, like, you can recognize that after the fact. But teams in general, and you mentioned this in maybe a an interview or, or a blog recently, this idea that there's not enough acceptance of mistakes. And in research in particular, I wonder if part of that could be because you know, we're doing everything we can just even to get our research accepted. And so admitting any sort of mistake could jeopardize that perhaps, or, you know, that might be an unconscious sort of assumption that's happening. But I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. You know, how do we make a safe space for admitting mistakes so that we can actually learn? You know, the book Doorbell's Danger and Dead Batteries, if people don't know it, it's a collection of about 65 stories, uh, fairly detailed stories from different researchers around the world about the kinds of things that have happened to them in field work. And, you know, it's up to us to interpret if we think those are mistakes or not. I mean, mistakes is a really, we could treat this as a really broad category. Some of those stories are just things that happen that are unexpected, which are out of our control, which often we think of as mistakes. Well, did you make sure that there wasn't a, you know, a loose dog in the house? <laughs> well, no, I didn't know that. Sort of the, the patient zero of, of the stories for me was, is about a colleague of mine. It's a, there's a whole story that, you know, just you can go find it online, but it's about him kneeling in a cat pee. It was a wet carpet that he didn't see. And he he kneeled in it in this moment of like, of trying to be on the same eye level as his participants. So there's all this empathy in what he did, but he really paid the price. Um, You know, and I just think like, is that a mistake? Like, should he have brought a second pair of pants with him? You know, I think there's always like a, a temptation to correct ourselves or others. Well, you should know that this would happen and you should have you know, pants with you to, to, to change into, like you can't possibly predict. So part of the point of the book is it's just to like, let's just accept that things are going to happen, whether it's things that are outside or things that are us, we stepped in something or said something or asked the question the wrong way. Like it's just inevitable. I mean, I hoped 
that by collecting these stories and putting it out there and just saying like, hey, this is a thing, it starts to invite people to acknowledge that these things do happen, that it's it's part of the experience of being a researcher and to to normalize it. Hey, it's in a book, right? So uh, and uh, lots of people are sharing it. I don't have to feel so alone with my own mistakes, my own experiences. And I've seen pieces here and there where at you know conferences or meetups, they will invite people to share more stories. They'll convene a session in that format. So you know, the more people tell stories that just say like, hey, this happened to me or I did this thing. For me, it doesn't have to be. And therefore, the takeaway is this and I will never do this again. It's just maybe yeah, normalizing that this is what happens and starting to create some acceptance. You know, I, I've heard that uh, in some organizations, teams are doing this themselves. They're setting aside some time. And then maybe this is a thing that researchers do themselves, not with maybe other functions. I think you run the risk of being judged if you're going to do this. So choosing sort of who and how and when to have these conversations. And they don't have to be epic stories. The, the story about Neely and Cat P is quite epic. Some of these stories are, you know, once in a lifetime uh, experiences, but there are just pedestrian things that happen. Can I offer one just to, to, yeah, to normalize absolutely. it? So, um, <laughs> you mean one of your own? We get yeah. To I mean, this is not a this is not the level of war story. It's just a level of mistake. You know, one of the things I'm pretty sure it's in interviewing users, and it shows up a lot in the workshops that I do. Is is about how do you start off the very beginning of the interview? And my advice is not to try too hard to kind of small talk people because that's not really what they're there for. It just goes back to your thing about how do we kind of process these mistakes? Because this this happened a couple months ago. I was interviewing someone uh, at a corporate office. And so I sort of knew all the names of who I was meeting with at this office. And there was someone who was coming. It was in the Silicon Valley where I am. They were coming in for that week. So I was going to get to meet them in person. They were from the Vancouver office. My family lives in Vancouver. I have a lot of affection for Vancouver. Um, I'd either just been there to see my family or was just about to go there. So, you know, I'm running around this office, going from meeting room to meeting room and talking with people and doing all these interviews. And, you know, I sort of in my head thought, oh, this is the woman from Vancouver. So when she came in or I came in, I started off like, oh, Vancouver, my mother lives in this neighborhood. This is where my sister lives. And we were just, and, and I she t- the totally flatline. Like I got no <laughs> reaction from them. You know, so I went to the interview. The interview was fine, but I went home and I just was, I don't know, carrying around a little, uh, a little grudge, like, like <laughs> when something doesn't go right in the day and you sort of, you know, uh, ruminate over it for the next couple of days. And, and my mm-hmm. stories to myself were just very judgmental. Like what's wrong with this person? I tried to be friendly and kind of connect with her about, you know, Hey, I'm an expat and I wanted something from her. And what's wrong with her? And it took me, I don't know, some number of days before what is obvious, I think, because I tell the story now, like, this was my fault. This was my mistake. I brought something into that interview that was about me, not her, that was not relevant or appropriate to what her expectations were. And then I judged her for failing to do that. 
even though like I could go pull up the slide where I explain exactly how not to do this. I didn't hear myself doing it at the time. (laughs) I didn't hear myself doing it afterwards. And I was, I don't know, I felt happy when I realized that because like everything came into focus. Like, of course, that's what happened. And I was happy to, I don't have another example. Like you're the first person I've told about this, but I've been holding on to it for a little while. I've been sort of eager to share it because yeah, I made a mistake. I, I made a mistake that goes against a thing that I've written about and, and taught. And, you know, it was a low consequences mistake. It didn't wreck the interview and, uh, you know, I'm good enough to recover from this thing that the other person was doing. Obviously, it was me. It was my failure. But in the moment, I thought I decided it was their failure. I'm able to recover from that. How did I create the conditions to identify what was really going on in that interview? I mean, I think it's, I mean, ruminating is sometimes seen as a bad word, but I was just, you know, playing with it over and over again in my head. Um, I don't know if I spoke aloud about it to somebody. Maybe I did tell somebody about it. Um, and maybe that's where it kind of popped for myself. I, I don't remember, but I know that I had that, oh, of course, that's why this happened. Yeah. Well, that's such a, a powerful example. And thank you so much for sharing it with our audience, because it's important for people who are, well, for everyone. It's, it certainly is important, I think, for for folks who are continuing to learn and maybe feel like they should know better. (laughs) I've been doing this for five or six years, you know, to realize that we're all still learning. Like, it would be really boring if suddenly you or I got to a point where I, you know, like, I, I just know everything and I'm not making any mistakes anymore. And so there's nothing to learn. <laughs> that would not be fun. I'd have to find something else to do, I think, at that point. <laughs> I want to thank you so much. We're, we're coming to the end of our time. And I feel like, of course, <laughs> this is just scratching the surface. We could probably talk about this for another several hours, probably. But I wonder if people are interested in continuing these conversations. I know that you're on Twitter a lot, although I think I see a lot of political posts <laughs> on your Twitter feed. You do, yep. <laughs> because we're in those times. But I know that you're also accessible in the community, and Twitter might be a good place for people to have this conversation. How can people find you? Uh, LinkedIn is also another place where LinkedIn is all about work for me. Twitter is about lots of things. Uh, those are a couple of platforms. You know, if you're on various places where researchers are gathering, you probably already are on those Slack channels and email lists. I'm on those. Yeah, and I'll put links to certainly the open Slack channels. Um, I think when I share Slack channels or ask them if they're on them, people often say they, they're not aware. So that's, yep. that is a good thing to share. Well, thank you again, Steve, so much. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. I hope I get a chance to talk to you again in future. But this is a real treat for the UX Cake audience, I think. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed uh, our conversation today. If you enjoy the UX Cake podcast and you want to help us grow our community, I have three action items for you. First, share this episode with a friend or colleague. There's a share function in every podcast platform, including on our website. You can also share a link to an episode on your work Slack or your social media channel of choice. 
that gets this content to more people who find it useful. Number two, rate and review the UX Cake podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. This is the social proof that potential sponsors and partners we want to work with look to. If you don't have an iPhone, you can still rate and review in iTunes on your computer. Just search for UX Cake in the iTunes store, click on the podcast, and go to the ratings and reviews button. And number three, subscribe to our email list at uxcake.co and to our Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook or all of them, if you like. Thanks again for listening and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a bite. UX life is hard. Eat more cake.